This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Hello, and welcome to Resonance 104.4 FM, London's most interesting radio station. And more specifically, welcome to Suite 212, a program which puts the arts in a social, political and cultural context. Your usual host, Juliet Jakes, is on a residency in Kiev where she's making a film. You can hear more about her discoveries out there on Sweet 212 Extra, which you can find via the show's Twitter at Sweet 212, Sweet underscore 212, sorry. Uh, but for now, for this show, you've got me, Tom Overton, uh, at TW underscore Overton on Twitter. Uh, and I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined today in the studio by the award-winning filmmaker Mike Dibb. Hello, Mike. Hello, Tom. <laughs> Mike and I first came into contact because of uh, his lifelong collaboration with the artist and writer John Berger, whose biography I'm currently writing. After working together on the hugely influential and award-winning BBC TV series and later book Ways of Seeing in 1972, Mike continued to collaborate with Berger for the rest of his life. Burgess life. Uh, their working relationship shaved, shaped, sh- shaved both of them? shaped both of them in fundamental ways, I think. But Mike's films have had many other collaborators and subjects. In a career spanning almost five decades, the critic Sukdev Sandhu wrote in The Guardian in 2012, it's possible Dib has, sha- has shaped more ideas and offered more ways of seeing than any other TV documentarian of his generation. It's thus going to be very difficult to fit the scope of Mike's achievement into this hour-long slot. Often the films take ideas for a kind of essayistic walk. 1976's uh, About Drawing, for instance, explored its subject with contributors such as David Hockney and Ralph Steadman. In 1981 and 2, the five-part series Fields of Play explored the idea of play in every area of our lives, from war games to creativity and sport. Along with the film Mike made of C.L.R. James's book on cricket, Beyond the Boundary, I thought these films were particularly fascinating to watch alongside all the televised sport we've been watching recently. Uh, very often Mike's films are taken in the form of biographical studies, of A.S. Byatt and of Salvador Dali in 1996, or in 2001 of the writer and oral historian Studs Terkel, and then of mu- musician Miles Davis. The Davis film won Mike both the Royal Philharmonic Society TV Award and an International Emmy for Arts Documentary of the Year. Watching that film back to prepare for today, I was struck by a moment in which the biographer Ian Carr says that Miles Davis often looked back but always moved forward because anyone who doesn't look back is an idiot because the only thing you've got as creative basis of your memory is your memory. I think that's largely true of Mike. Not that he's an idiot, but that he's still making films but, uh, and is thankfully still very happy to revisit ideas. I hope our conversation today can draw out some of the common threads in his work, encourage listeners to watch as many of these films as they can get their hands on. As usual, we'll, po- as usual, we'll post some links after the show and finally to look at the exciting project Mike is working on at the moment. So, Mike, welcome to Suite 212. If, you, if I've got my dates right, your filmmaking career didn't start with Ways of Seeing in 1972. You joined the BBC in 1963, having studied at Trinity College in Dublin. What did you study, and then what did you work on in those first years in the 60s? Well, I formally studied English and Spanish, but I really became passionate about the cinema. Hmm. And when I got to uh, Trinity College Dublin, which was a sort of strange way I got there because I had done all my A-levels were physics, chemistry and biology because my father was a GP and in East Yorkshire and as I grew up they all said Michael what are you going to be? Are you going to be a doctor like your father? And of course because I didn't really know what I was going to be I thought well you know maybe I will become a doctor like my father uh, they also said if you talk like that Michael you won't get on <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I did physics chem because actually that's the first MB uh, it's on the route to medicine. But yeah. I realised I wasn't a scientist. You can tell quite soon when you're with in a class who's the really good scientist and who can technically sort of pass exams but isn't really got the scientific mind. Mm. And uh, But I was accepted to do um, reading degree in chemistry at King's College, Cambridge. Mm. But I thought, I don't want to do that at all. It's, hopeless, it's ridiculous. All I want to do is English because... Uh, and I was interested in art, but you didn't do degrees in art. So, um, But Cambridge wouldn't let me transfer mm. from chemistry to English mm. because F.R. Leavis, who was the sort of doyen of literary uh, criticism at Cambridge, thought that actually um, a scientist reading English literature was a very bad idea when it seems to me that actually all you need to read English literature is the ability to read and interested in the relationship between books and the social world they 
come from? Isn't that, that was what Empson did, did, isn't he? He shifted from science to, to English literature. Oh, did he? Well, there you are. You see, that's... You should have told him that. No, I, I didn't know. <laughs> well, anyway, didn't, but you? then a friend of mine had gone to Trinity College Dublin, ironically, to read chemistry, <laughs> phoned me up. Oh, I talked to him, he was a close friend. He said, you know, Mike, why don't you just come here? Trinity College Dublin is fantastic. And the only thing you need to get into Trinity College Dublin was five O-levels as long as one of them was Latin. And that, I fulfilled the um, application thing. And I applied sort of two or three months late for the closing date for applications. But in fact, I got within a week a uh, very nice card from someone called Professor E.C. Riley accepting me. Um, and uh, welcoming to welcoming me to Syringe College Dublin, which was a wonderful four years, which is a long preamble <laughs> to the fact that I'd, I was always interested in the cinema. I used to go to the cinema with my dad, you know, he, uh, twice a week, uh, just in local cinemas in Filey and Scarborough. But um, I became really interested in cinema because, of course, it was the 60s. Uh, here, here, um, or the late 50s, early 60s. So here was Jean-Luc Godard, Truffaut, all the Antonioni Italian cinema. Um, and I thought I was in kind of slightly cultural backwater in Dublin. But then I met uh, a wonderful historian called Charles Barr, who's still a close friend. Uh, and he was doing the first postgraduate film degree uh, at uh, the Slade. And he was doing a thesis on cinemascope. And I met him, and he was the first person I'd met who'd ever seen a film ten times. <laughs> and I was so impressed by that. I thought, good Lord, a person who's seen a film ten times. What was the film? The James Brothers, <laughs> <laughs> a Western. And that was even more extraordinary. So, uh, and Charles pointed out to me that I wasn't in a cinematic backwater. I was in a cinematic cornucopia of mm. American cinema between 1940 and 1960. Mm. Uh, and Dublin hadn't got television then, so it's pre-television. So the cinema audiences were huge. Mm. You had a double bill, changing three times a week, twice a week, with a different program on Sundays. Mm. And on Sunday nights, you had to book because the cinemas were so full. So I bought a, um, a book. Um, with, I became very involved with the cinema together with a friend. And we bought a, call, a book called Vingt de Cinema Américain, 20 Years of American Cinema, which mm. became our kind of Bible. And we mm. took this French um, volume and translated it, all the titles into English, and we made a little sort of dictionary so we could actually look every night on the double evening herald and the evening standard to see what the cinemas were. And so we just went every night to see double bills. And when I was working for my degree, I saw a double bill every night for three months. And so what I developed was a passion for the cinema. Um, and by the time I left Trinity, I used the degree of English and Spanish just to get through from year to year. Mm. But I just sort of scraped through and got there, mm. but not with a great degree. And what I should have been started given a, my final song, American cinema between 1940 and 1960, I think I'd have got quite a good degree because <laughs> I'd seen all the movies, these westerns. You know, I could suddenly look up and you'd see Orson Welles' The Stranger, which is playing a second in a double bill in the Rialto Dundrum or something. And it was fantastic. So when I left Dublin, I knew I wanted to be working film, mm. but I'd never seen a documentary because <laughs> documentary is a completely alien thing. Yeah. But I, together with two other friends, applied to the BBC for a trainee assistant film editor. Mm. And believe it or not, all three of us got in uh, as a trainee assistant film editor at the BBC. And I think what got me in was that actually together with my friend, we did make a movie, extremely um, um, ridiculous movie, uh, because we have... Um, I won't tell you the plot. I never finished the film, and I do have the the, the fragments of the film still oh, in the right. cellar. But, but was it a western? No, it wasn't. It was a ridiculous 
um, which was hugely influenced by Antonio and Goddard. It was actually where there was this little sort of ridiculous narrative about a relationship of a woman who was very bored because she was in a kind of Antonioni movie, and then she wandered off from this ridiculous cocktail party in the middle of the Dublin mountains uh, and um, was met by somebody in a De Chavot. So she then thought that she was in a Jean-Luc Godard movie. <laughs> and we were, you know, I mean, the most pretentious and nonsensical thing, but it made me... It, it, it was something I could talk about when I went to the BBC interview because mm. it looked as if I had made a film. And mm. I didn't tell them it had never been finished. I didn't tell them what a poor movie it was. Uh, they didn't, but it did demonstrate an enthusiasm mm. for cinema. And so I got in uh, as a trainee assistant film editor on then, June the 10th, 1963. I can remember exactly the date when I walked through the gates of Ealing Film Studios, and I thought, good God, this is where The Lady Killers was made, you know, this is where <laughs> the man in the white suit. I mean, so what, so what, what were you working on for those first few years? Oh, you mean in the... In, yeah, the BBC. Oh, in the BBC. Um, well, you just... You had a sort of induction course for about two or three weeks, and then you were sent from different cutting rooms uh, for a month here, a month there, a month... All the, so you were sent around to different cutting rooms, and there were all the... And the first cutting room I went into as a trainee, believe it or not, the director was David Attenborough. <laughs> and David was directing a documentary about the London Symphony Orchestra's uh, trip to Japan, I think it was. And, and the editing machinery was very sort of rickety and ridiculous. Um, and, but he was the first person I met as a documentary director in practice. And so... Um, and feel, and feel, he was as nice then as he is now. Do you feel like you learned from him? Oh, no, I don't think I learned anything, except I just... Um, I can still remember the first bit of music mm. because it was a little Mozart, a bit of a Mozart symphony on a, one of those bullet trains of the, of the members of the orchestra going across Japan. And I went diddle 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 And it's strange that that fragment of music stays in my memory as the first time I was in a real cutting room where a film was being constructed. Well, that that link between film and music is maybe something we pick up later on. I'm sad to say we have a piano in the in the studio. Had I known Mike was going to do that, we could have accompanied him. But so. So move, moving on a little bit um, to uh, unless there's there are any sort of big landmarks you, you feel like you want to mention before then the the sort of the beginnings of ways of seeing and sort of the, do you want to well I, yes I think I probably already? should actually say I mean I talk about the cinema mm. but the other passion I had and, and it was towards the end of my school list was painting mm. and I discovered John Berger's writing in the New Statesman about the age of seventeen or whatever mm. so I'd, and I wrote about John. In I hope an article which has disappeared and cannot be found, uh, when I was at the in, in at Trinity College Dublin in one oh, of the magazines. No, no, don't please, please. <laughs> oh God, fancy saying what a revelation to John's biographer. God save us, Mike. What are you doing? You drop yourself in it now. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so. So John was an accompaniment. I mean, it talked as if the only thing I was interested in the cinema that wasn't true. Uh, I was very interested in art and painting. And uh, and um, and John's writing in particular really uh, introduced me not only into a way of writing about painting, but actually into a way of seeing the relationship between art and social world around it. Mm. Uh, and so, in a way, it was a strange thing to be going in the New Statesman, which is basically a political magazine, mm. that entering the political sphere from the back entrance through an art column mm. rather than absolutely directly through uh, the political pages at the front of the thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, so John was a constant uh, presence. And one of the things I did talk about at the interview when I joined the BBC, they said, have you ever seen any recent programmes? Mm. And one of the most recent ones was uh, a, a John programme a studio program about Picasso, which I think mm. doesn't exist anymore. Mm. I think it was done in a studio, and I think it was probably wiped, mm. so it doesn't exist. But I did talk about that program as being one something I'd seen recently and found very interesting uh, at this first interview yeah. at Ely. So, so Berger and I were connected even at the moment when I was applying to join the BBC. So there's that, there's that common thread running through it. So, so then, how did the how did the whole process of ways of seeing begin? 
Well, I'd met John in 1969, I think it was, because uh, he and Anya, his then wife, had written uh, this wonderful translation of Brecht poems, which I loved. And in fact, um, I took some of the text of that as being a text which actually has influenced the way I thought about documentary, uh, particularly the thing that it, on the art of observation. Mm. And I remember always being slightly resistant to the notion of an observational documentary, mm. which doesn't include, as it were, the presence of the maker in it, as if somehow the maker is outside the experience. Mm. And, just, uh, and, and it seemed unnatural to be with people who filming with them when you weren't actually engaging with them. Mm. So it's not that I don't think observational documentary can do some remarkable things. It has to be a very specific context in which it really works. Um, and so, uh, and there was a notion that there might be a film about Brecht, mm. Bertolt Brecht. And, and so I went and spent an evening with John and Anya, uh, who were staying in Paul Barker's flat in... Uh, in Paul Barker of New Society. Which is where John was writing yeah. then. And uh, and though the Brecht, poem, Brecht uh, project never happened, I'd made a, a contact with John mm. and beginning of a friendship. Mm. Uh, and then after um, Civilization, Stephen Hurst, who was then the uh, um, head of music and arts, wrote to John, who's well-known as a television person because he'd done some very exceptional films for mm. uh, Monitor. Actually, with the Berger one, I mean, the um, Picasso one was directed by Peter Montagnon mm. and most of the others by Michael Gill. Mm. And the two co-producers of Civilization were Peter Montagnon and Michael Gill. For, for, for listeners who aren't up on 60s televisions, Civilization, of course, the Kenneth Clark uh, multi-part yes. documentary series going all around the world that was uh, recently sort of remade, but maybe you can yes. return to that later. Sorry, carry on. No, no, it's all right. No, no, of course. And of course, I was... Um, uh, and, and people thought, well, this was being made in response to Civilization. I don't think John ever saw... An episode of Civilization. Mm. He did know Kenneth Clark, as you know, from mm. earlier connections, but he lived in Switzerland, so he wasn't going to be seeing it. Uh, and we weren't making a series in opposition to Civilization at all, um, uh, in any conscious way, except that I think in the concept we had in Ways of Seeing, which was based, um, stimulated by. Uh, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, the Walter Benjamin essay, and the aspiration was to try and turn a densely written essay into something playful mm. and interactive. Mm. Um, so you didn't downgrade the ideas, but you found another way of approaching them, which included an audience in the experience mm. of how reproduction has changed the way we see mm. painting. Uh, and um, anyway, Stephen Hurst wrote to John saying, would he like to make four half-hour films on themes and subjects of his choice? Mm. In fact, he didn't come up with the idea then of doing it with Walter, about basing on Walter Benjamin. He actually came up with another idea, which was, I think, to do with... I don't think... I'd, unfortunately, I've often looked, but I haven't got the original thing. But it was just a short thing where he was suggesting half-hour, which would begin with an archetypal European painting and mm. then weave an argument and narrative around it. But that... Uh, was abandoned quite soon. Uh, but because of my uh, friendship then with John, and um, John Drummond, who was the assistant head of the department and in theory sort of the executive producer of Ways of Seeing, uh, realised that I should be part of it. Mm. And initially I was going to be part of it because I was a junior member of the department mm. uh, and I had directed a few little films but nothing big. Uh, that I should certainly be the researcher on it and develop it with John mm. and then probably direct one of them and we didn't know who was going to direct the rest. But very soon he realised that, you know, a relationship was formed. Mm. And so with great... Um, uh, wisdom. <laughs> because he was very different. You know, his, his whole way of seeing the world, John, was very different from John's and mine. But actually mm. the 
music and arts really responded to that. You know, there was a huge range of different sensibilities in the people who directed, and they they somehow felt that all these different sides of our approach to culture should be represented. Mm. After all, civilization is there, so John should be there. Mm. Um, and uh, so it very soon became whatever John and I decided to make it about, with, with incredibly little intervention from above. Mm. And there were, uh, apart from the, the opening one, the Walter Benjamin one, which is about the art, work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. Uh, the other essay that existed, which was his introduction, I think, to themes and subjects in painting, which became the basis of the, of the film about the materialist, you know, tradition of, of European oil painting. Uh, and then he'd just written G, uh, which won the Booker Prize in 1972. So, and a lot of it was about the relationship between the male gaze and women. And mm. so there were certain sort of texts from that which mm. formed the basis of the film about the representation of women. Mm. And we'd already started making the series before we even knew what the last film was going to be about. In fact, mm. for quite a long time, we thought it was going to be an unpicking of the concept of national heritage. And uh, then, after I realised that didn't work. So we were kind of floundering a bit about what the last film should be. Mm. And then John was went to... Um, he, was a close, he was a good friend of Hugh Weldon, who was the presenter of Monitor, and they developed a good friendship. Um, and Hugh invited him to have dinner out in Hugh's house in Richmond. Mm. And on his way, John was in the tube, and he was looking at the posters on the tube. And he rang me the following morning, saying, Mike, I think, I think I know what the last film should be about. If you think about the different the gestures and you know relationship of colour photography, oil paint, I think the European tradition has gone into advertising, mm. uh, and that that we should make the last film about advertising. Though he never used the word advertising mm. because living in France or in Switzerland, he always called it publicité. Mm. So it was always publicity rather than advertising, mm. uh, and so that's how the last film developed. So it had a sort of incredibly organic, free flowing. Evolution, yeah. not n where we didn't have to sort of argue the case with people above us. We just had to convince each other that what we were doing seemed a good idea. And of course, partly because of that um, method of composition, uh, we're now in the situation where people can, who are listening right now, can watch it on on YouTube uh, because all of the rights weren't weren't cleared in the same way that Civilization was. Well, you couldn't do it. That's the irony, of course, is that Civilization went everywhere except Spain, of course. Mm. And I think one of the things that is, was shocked me absolutely as a Hispanist mm. when civilization went out, and as a person who thought Goya and Velázquez were two, one the, two of the greatest painters, uh, and that Spain was the most extraordinarily fascinating cornucopia of and, and the moment when Christianity, Islam and Judaism were closer together than ever before. Mm. And that's what gave Spanish culture astonishing richness mm. and also the foundation of the Renaissance, the rest of the Renaissance in Europe, because so many of the ideas that fed in to that mm. came through Spain, that Clark ignored it. Mm. And I remember thinking, this is outrageous. <laughs> this is outrageous. Um, which wasn't to sort of comment on his patrician, it was just sort of the refusal to see uh, the significance of Spain mm. in, in European civilization. Well, in in, your, in late, later films of yours, you kind of focus on that, uh, the importance of the Hispanic, um, the the Spanish world. So we can, so we should. That's probably a reminder to keep, to keep moving through the. Right. Through but, your but what was your work. question, God? <laughs> <laughs> I was asking about the, the context of ways of seeing, but from there we can move on to. Uh, Maybe other works that you did with John. Well, first off, there was immediate. What was the immediate response to Ways of Seeing? Like, how do you? Because I think, I think the first episode of it went out on the Saturday night against um, Match of the Day. I can remember looking back on yes. the. Uh... Only I would have been conflicted over that. John wouldn't have been. John wouldn't, wouldn't, John wouldn't, wouldn't have been conflicted at all about that because John, for all his um, political things, I mean, he wasn't a person who was really connected to popular culture in that sort of. 
mm. way in which you know you couldn't imagine him watching Top of the Pops. So I couldn't imagine going to a football match mm. uh, with with John. You know, he wasn't interested in that sort of broad uh, English popular culture um, mm. cultural spaces at all. Um, but uh, the well, he did an interview for the Radio Times, but they didn't publish it. Um, not because it wasn't good, but they thought an interview with Malcolm Muggeridge, who was quite popular and a significant figure on television at the time, was more interesting. So it went out with almost minimal publicity, certainly on behalf of the BBC. I mean, it just... Yeah. You know. um, but, um, but... But the Sunday Times, there was a guy called Elkin Allen who ran the first... Um, page of um, which was dedicated to uh, previews mm. of Nick, the forthcoming week's television because for a long time the Radio Times had an embargo on other people advertising BBC programmes mm. and so newspapers weren't allowed to advertise them but El somehow they, just, they got round that and Elkin Allen and Elkin Allen came to um, look at the films, look at the first, and he really went overboard about them. Mm. So that Elkin Allen in the Sunday Times was the one to alert the BBC to the fact that actually something incredibly interesting was happening opposite Match of the Day on Saturday or whatever it was. Uh, and that was the first time, and that made people watch. Yeah. It didn't actually produce a lot of reviews, and I don't think New Statesman ever reviewed it. Mm. I, I think the I think George Melly, who's re reviewing for the Observer, reviews one of them. But mm. you know, it, the Guardian, did, you know, it wasn't actually a thing which got an immediate yeah. reviews. Well, it's gro it's grown and grown since. And as I said, uh, listeners can can watch it on ways of on uh, on YouTube. Sorry, uh, you're listening to Sweet Two on Two on London's yeah. Resonance One of Four Point Four FM. Uh, I'm Tom Overson talking to the filmmaker Mike Dibb. Uh, so did the success of Ways of Seeing change the freedom you had to do things from the BBC from, from then on? Uh, not as much immediately as I would have liked, really, um, because the, it was uh, complicated by the fact that the next thing that John and I wanted to do was a film based on Seventh Man, uh, his book on migrant labour. And... Uh, we got into sort of terrible problems with that, mainly because um, Orbe Singer, who was the feature—I mean, he was—he uh, was in charge. He was above the control of arts programmes. He just felt this wasn't a an arts documentary. It should be current affairs, or mm. and and then departmental boundaries were rather strictly things, and um, thought it shouldn't happen. And John was very upset about it. Mm. and there was terrible rows and although Hugh Weldon in the end intervened and said oh come on John let's and John withdrew and said he didn't want to do anything more with the BBC mm. but the trouble was that actually I was a staff member of the BBC and so the political flack fell and because it was such a political program mm. and I was a um, I was a member of the union in fact I was the representative of the ACTT, and so I was a sort of known political figure. And although Aubrey Singh, I remember telling me, Mike, you understand the BBC rule, uh, we don't mind what your politics are as long as they don't show in your programmes. <laughs> uh, I, I had obviously overstepped that boundary because uh, ways, ways of seeing was a sort of shared collaboration in which there was no way I was just simply transmitting uh, John's ideas without sharing them. Uh, but this one, I mean, it was deeply political subject, mm. uh, and so no, I mean, the 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 next two or three years were rather a sort of um, dull one, really, well, and it only came back with the drawing film. We'll move to that in a second, but just before um, while we're on um, Seventh Man, because as a reminder, there's a third person in that collaboration too, which is, which is the photographer Jean Moore. Um, and 
since Ways of Seeing, lots of your films have had shots of photos or postcards being fanned out on tables, as if illustrating that the dif- differences and similarities between them as forms of photography, one moving and the other static. And I, I wanted to ask you about how you thought about that kind of relationship between the still and the, the moving image, because it's such a, a theme for a lot of your or technique through a lot of your work? Yes, it's not really quite a, a, a theme. I'm, I, I was just very interested, and particularly when I did um, Pig Earth, the film with John, which was using stills, I thought that this is an interesting challenge, how to make a film using stills, mm. uh, because stills have a different relationship to the world of mm. cinema, uh, to film. And also in that, um, it's difficult to remind, remember and that actually Super 8... Mm. movies, you know, with the home movie, had a sort of flickering quality, which is also different mm. from the sophisticated 16mm high-def you know, resolution. Mm. And so with Pig Earth, I wanted the... I gave Jean Moore a little 8mm camera mm. and asked him to film stuff on the eight mil to intercut with, uh, and and so it was just really a, a, an exploration of of the different ways you can play with images mm. and movement and stakes, and also I was making it with um, with um, my wonderful friend uh, Di Vaughan, mm. who was a great film editor and wrote a wonderful book about editing, and so it was a, a sort of shared exploration of how to make mm. um, a film about. A film using stills, but actually the other thing, and it's something I think about quite a lot when I see um, films now, because technology allows you to sort of overplay. You can do anything with an image, you know. You could take my body and dissolve it into your eyeball, you know. Technologically, you can just sort of do anything. But actually, you don't ever get the stillness of a still image. Mm. And I remember. Um, in, in the film I did with John, uh, which was in the About Time series, mm. when he read that beautiful poem he wrote about Orlando Letelier, mm. there was, which was about the how he was, uh, a bomb was um, put in his car and, and he was killed in Washington. Um, and what was terrific is that actually you just had to cut to a, a moment where there was just three people grieving mm. and you just held that still mm. and if you get the timing right it can just provoke you to tears mm. in a way which is extremely striking mm. and that kind of use of timing and stillness um, and uh, Keith Jarrett in the film I made about with him on the art of improvisation he said Timing, and I asked him about simplicity. He said, timing is the complex part of simplicity. And he was talking about improvisation Mm. and actually just about playing the piano and Mm. just finding the note when you play the note. And it's the timing rather than the... You're not playing necessarily a very, very complicated technical thing. Mm. It's just maybe even playing a simple tune. But uh, and, And I think that kind of possibility is now almost negated, the technology has become so sophisticated. How many images, before we see a feature film uh, in a movie house, how many images have we seen in the trailer and the commercials before we see it? I mean, I tried to count once, and you just lost it. It was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So in a way, all the images become expendable because Mm. they become almost meaningless because they're used so with so much preconception. And one of the things that definitely happened with, with um, when you were working in 60mm editing before uh, we moved into the new technology was even if you wanted to do a dissolve between one image and another, it was technically quite a complicated thing. Mm. You had to take all the frames of the film, you had to look at the digit numbers on the, mm. on the side of the film, mark it up, and it took about half an hour or 40 minutes for an assistant film editor to mark up an optical mm. and send it to the laboratory. So we had to put these two bits of the negative together and make it extremely precise. So actually you had to think through very carefully, do I need this effect? Is this imp- Why do I want to do it? Because it's, it's, you had to pay, it was a little bit more costly at the labs. 
and so in a sense, you thought much more precisely about whether you wanted to make a cut and dissolve. And, mm. and Dye, as a film editor, hated putting in dissolves because he felt, if I'm doing that, it proves I haven't had the moment to make the cut right. <laughs> and so, in a way, there was a kind of um, attention to detail and subtlety, but also simplicity and timing, mm. uh, which has slightly been lost by the ability now to just press buttons and make every image crowd on every other image. That's something that really struck me looking at um, your archive, that it's because there are elements of it which are text and elements which are, are film, and it kind of really reminds you that actually when you're making films and you're literally getting a guillotine and chopping bits of celluloid and then gluing them back together in exactly the same way that, that Berger did when he was editing his text, because he yes. just cut them out, cut chunks out of the paper and then sellotape them back together in different ways. So there's this interesting sort of text and, and image thing going on. Well, I mean, picking up on that, I mean, as an assistant film editor, uh, and I was in Tonight or Grandstand or, you know, the film editors were making these cuts on print, which wasn't going to go to the labs to be neg cut and printed. Mm. What they were editing as a, as a film item going out in Tonight or anything like that, they were doing in the cutting room and they had to cut. But every time you made a cut, you lost three frames. Mm. So actually, if you didn't get the cut right, you couldn't redo it quite so easily because actually you'd... Um, and, and as assistant film editors, we were just sort of people who, who sat in the next door room with this kind of machine where you scrape the emulsion off one bit of the film as, and then you put uh, uh, cement on it, you know, uh, and, and then you had to join it together, hold it for a certain amount of time so that, because it was heated, so that definitely the cut was made, mm. and then wind it on. So there was an editor in one room editing the film, and in these turnover programs like Tonight and things which you were just sort of turning it all out quickly, mm. um, you were doing just simply an absolutely basic, um, basic uh, technical physical job you could have been making you know screwing on a nut for ford at a ford <laughs> making for model t fords you know well that's um the the editing we started off talking about there the uh once upon a time uh that's on youtube and we'll post it afterwards so everyone can see the the editing and the effects that you're talking about there and just sort of carrying on some of what you're saying about music and also the kind of text and film idea uh skipping forward sort of a rather a lot rather far um it reminded me of a moment in your miles davis film in 2001 uh where you're focusing on um uh davis's soundtrack to louis mallet's uh, 1958 film uh lift to the scaffold uh and you have davis uh is making music in response to a film and you're making a passage of film about that music uh and because you sort of raised it slightly when you're talking about keith jarrett i wanted to ask you uh about how jazz has been important to you, not just as a subject matter, but a formal inspiration in that sort of way. That um, is the, the and the kind of the element of improvisation in your work sometimes that kind of sits alongside having rigid, almost like a chord sequence, like a structure, and how that fits with. Well, I think no, well, jazz was my first individual passion musically, because mm. uh, my father was a GP, but he was also rather a good pianist. He played the piano every day. And so I grew up in a, a world which was listening to Chopin or something being played or practice of Beethoven or something every day. And the discovery of New Orleans jazz uh, as a teenager was an extraordinary revelation to me. And that was the first time I found a musical expression which wasn't inherited from my father. I mean, I still like classical music and still mm. deeply respond to it, but that was my sort of... And so I became absolutely fascinated uh, with um, jazz. And what I loved about jazz um, was the way in which, you know, you could only record three and a half or a maximum probably four minutes. And the, the, the way that improvisation was combined with incredible form of precision. Mm. So that actually each individual, you know, a clarinetist or a trumpeter or whatever, couldn't overstay their welcome. They mm. had an ensemble piece, they had a moment of improvisation, 
mm. which had to respect the other, then come back. And, and then it ends beautifully in three and a half minutes. Mm. So you not only have you improvised for three and a half minutes, but you've self-consciously created this incredible precise form. Mm. And uh, the irony, of course, was that because that was actually a technical limitation imposed on the music, which gave rise to a wonderful formal mm. solution. Uh, but sometimes, you know, the, the, the jazz purists thought that any improvisations that went on for longer than that were impure. Mm. Because, obviously, if, you went, if you'd been with Louis Armstrong or Jelly Roll Morton and his Red Hot Peppers, they wouldn't have, if they were playing live... They mm. wouldn't have done it just for three and a half minutes. It was the recording studio. Yeah, but yeah. then the jazz people who picked it up thought that actually if you had things that went on and on and on, that mm. was buggering up the... That was impure. But, of course, it's the interesting about jazz and technology is the way that the technology changed the form of jazz. Mm. Uh, so I've loved improvisation, and I've always dreamed of being a jazz musician. That's just something I haven't ever been because I'd love to have that experience of being inside mm. a quintet where you're really hearing the others and you have your moment, but you have to actually have your moment, but never overplay it. Um, but the other thing, which is perhaps also important um, in the formal technique of filmmaking, is, and it goes back to my chemistry, is that I loved organic chemistry. And what I loved about organic chemistry with these carbon wings and rings and these wonderful visual representations of compounds mm. where one element was joined to another. And, mm. and, it, and on the page, if you look at a page of organic chemistry books, you have these lovely abstract images with, mm. which are representations of how elements can combine. Mm. And if they combine in different ways, they produce a different mm. um, solution. And how so that actually as an organic metaphor for my films mm. is how everything can be connected mm. not in a linear way mm. but in a way which was very complex because mm. you have up hunches. and so often i thought of my um films when i was thinking about how to edit them as a molecular structure mm. in which every uh, different elements could connect in different ways Mm. And you wouldn't know whether you came into a sequence this way, you would leave it that way. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. That actually, that, that you're not following a pre-scripted argument. You're allowing the elements of the film where, you've, where I have been asking questions of all sorts of different people in different contexts. And, but I haven't actually, at the moment of asking the questions, created the form of the film. I just opened up the possibilities of all these things being potentially connected in different ways. And the editing is a process of arriving at a resolution which seems as perfect as you can get in the editing time uh, of all these elements. Well, the, the other sort of um, comparison that is another sort of big uh, theme or, to or topic in your work that that makes me think of is, is sport. Because there's there, there's the... the Relationship between rules, uh, but the kind of the moments of, uh, of of play and the moments of, which is a sort of improv improvisation of, of, of sorts. And I mean, does that it, and that in itself brings me back to the CLR James film uh, Beyond the Boundary. Uh, and I was struck there by the way, which which people can also watch on YouTube. Uh, uh, by the way that you open with a, a really big chunk of uh, William Hazlitt, the great nineteenth-century essayist, the Indian jugglers, uh, talking about the relationship between physical uh, and intellectual sort of work, um, and as well as setting up the content of the film and responding to James's love of Hazlitt, uh, it sets up the idea that what we're about to watch is a kind of essay, um, and people. Are, Sukhdev Sandhu, I mentioned earlier, is called, um, talks about you and the film essay. Do you think you think of yourself as a as a film essayist in that way? Yeah, I think so much more than I'm a, a documentary filmmaker in the conventional sense. Uh, I think I am. I think of my things as an essay, yes. Mm. Uh, but I think film of a particular kind. You know that that in a sense, an essay uh, could be a, like of me writing. Mm. narrative for a documentary which would be another form of film essay and mm. with a lot of people who've done that uh, what I like is uh, to set off making a film with a lot of questions I'm wanting to ask mm. 
Mm. And the making of the film is a way of answering the questions. Mm. And and so uh, it's not say an essay which is being written by me. Mm. It's me provoking a response to certain questions and topics and ideas. Mm. But at the moment when I'm asking the person, I'm asking them knowing that they have to carry the sequence. I'm, I'm not thinking that they are just going to be there, as you often see in films now, where you see academics and things, who are just used really to prop up mm. the intellectual credibility of the film, mm. which is then actually presented in a narrative mm. off-screen voice or presenter-led voice where the presenter is doing the... He's telling mm. you what he feels and what she feels and how they've all been fascinated for years to do this, that and the other. Mm. I'm not interested in that. Right. I'm interested in meeting people and be really, really interested in what they have to say about their experience or about the topic under discussion. Mm. And if I don't feel at the end of the conversation that I have really respected and their contribution, I'd feel mm. it was a failure. Because I'm not trying to replace their contribution with a, with a subsequent narrative which just takes some of their content but pretends it's mine. Mm. They are the content of the film at any one moment. And it could be uh, someone you meet in the street, it could be a Vox Pop, it could be anywhere. You know. It could right. be in, a, in Atlantic City just asking a punter about their experience of gambling. Mm. Uh, and, and, but that's the experience you're wanting to... The, the essay to contain and what it, what is nice is you then get the uh, the naturalness of spontaneous thought and expression but through editing you create the precision of a written script mm. so you get the best of both worlds you get the spontaneous expression of an idea and you then can pre precisely find a place for it where it can resonate with all the other ideas well that's that seems very much like another sort of thing which runs through all of your work which is the the human voice and the kind of having people on screen talking talking to you um i mean through all of pretty much all of the films really but that's which is something that leads me on to the sort of the we need to move on to the kind of the last bit of of uh, of, of the show now because there's so much to fit in with so much we've missed but that's um by contrast to your next film which is about someone if if the other films have that sense of communication and voices talking to each other and voices talking to us the viewer and talking to you behind, behind the camera that then your next film is about someone who's in complete isolation uh and who can't sort of communicate with the outside world um i, I probably should let, just let you set it up what, what are you working on at the minute well i think it's going to be my last film and it's a film that landed in my life i didn't seek it out uh, I think it's going to be called The Dungeon Art of Donnie Johnson. And the film is about a guy who was in solitary confinement for 24 years. Uh, and how I came to know about him is I have a friend uh, called Steve Kurtz who I met in London in the 60s. He was over here and always kept in touch with him. And he was a psychoanalyst and writer living in New York who now moved to Mexico. And he wrote to me quite a few years ago saying, I've developed this pen pal relationship with an extraordinary prisoner who's in solitary confinement. And I think now they probably have exchanged maybe 500 of the most extraordinary letters. But he said, what's most extraordinary? Why he wrote to me not about the letters. He said, uh, this guy, Donnie Johnson, has felt a tremendous compulsion to become a painter. But in solitary confinement, alongside, I should say, 80,000 men and women at any one time in America, it's the biggest, biggest crime at the heart of American prison system. It's cruel, unusual punishment on an industrial scale. Mm. Um, and not acknowledged, you know, we talk about those kids in, um, you know, Mexican children and immigrant kids, but the thought that is that is an awful situation, but it's visible. Mm. Solitary confinement is the invisible crime at the heart of the American prison system. Mm. Uh, Donny wasn't allowed painting materials, so he had to make brushes from his own hair, and the only way he could synthesize colors was by buying M and M's and Skittles from the prison store, 
and he synthesised all his colours from the sugar coatings of M&M's Skittles, which he then supplements with coffee grounds from his breakfast mm. or bits of salt or crushed eggshells or something to give a little bit more texture to the pictures. And he's now made almost 300 of these little paintings. Uh, and Steve wrote to me because he said, these paintings are astonishing. They're very, they're not like other prisoners' paintings. Mm. There's something, he's got an eye and a sensibility which is quite astonishing. And mm. they are really beautiful, semi-abstract images. Mm. And um, do you think you'd like to make a film about it? And I immediately said yes. Mm. But of course, the thing you can't do, which is the conventional thing, is do an interview with a prisoner. Mm. He's invisible and inaudible. What you've got is his letters, which are the most beautiful written, the most moving letters. I'll, can I write, shall I just read you one yeah, thing? Yeah, sure. Listen to this. And all his letters, you can't see it, I'm afraid, on radio, are written in, in, written in longhand on extraordinary pages, which you cannot see, but maybe you want to... Maybe show some online. But they are just not a word crossed out. It's as if everything he thinks and feels goes pours out into the paint. And this is a wonderful essay called Dungeon Art. Hmm. But, and here's another one. But anyway, so... So, um... And... I'm entombed in the bowels of the worst prison in the state of California. From the depths of my soul in the shades of hell... I manifested art. The only place that I have any semblance of control over my environment is through creativity. I've been in prison for 30 years and it's a history whose nightmare I'm trying to awake from. When you're buried alive, you dig for your life. Digging where you delve in solitary confinement into the unconscious, I found a pool of mythic images and painted them with my own DNA i.e. a brush, and brush fashioned out of my own hair, which is most astonishingly beautiful. I mean, it's, <laughs> and you read that, and it seemed to me, that would be difficult. You know, anybody's going to say, yes, you must make a film about that. Mm. But it's actually taken about four years. <laughs> you know, it's been... But anyway, so, so that's what I'm making. But I yeah. think the, the BBC is now going to, to show it. Uh, and... and um, mm. You went, you, went, you went over to, to, to visit recently? Yes, well, what happened was I, I made the film and filmed with his mother, who's a remarkable, and his prisoner's rights lawyer and other people um, a few years ago. But then it, was, it came out of solitary and there was a, we're going to have a parole board. Mm. So actually I didn't hasten to finish because I thought, well, actually, the existence of the film might negatively affect mm. his parole board hearing Mm. Um, little did I realise how little interested the parole board was going to be yeah. in the evidence of his re rehabilitation. Mm. Um, so I put the put on hold. But then he had a parole board hearing, his first parole board hearing when he's out of solitary in April. Mm. But believe it or not, he's been in jail since the age of 18. He's now 58. Mm. He's probably the most intelligent, thoughtful, well-read, cultured guy in the American prison system. <laughs> uh, he had the most terrible childhood and got into drink and drugs as a child and had a violent time, you know. Violence in, imposed on you as a child, you react with violence. Pain mm. produces pain. Almost every prisoner you hear the story go back to their childhood and mm. you can see the seeds of what happened. Uh, and the awful things on April the 19th, he wasn't granted parole. Mm. So I went back to film the circumstances around his parole with his prisoner's rights lawyer, with his mother and family and things like that, uh, who were desperately hoping that he was going to get parole. Mm. And his mum, who's visited him every month for all the time he's been in prison, and he didn't get parole. Mm. Indeed, it was delayed for another five years, so that's the end of the film. Mm. So now I'm finishing the film, which I hope to be finishing it on a moment when he got out of jail. Mm. I can't. But because I was there um, at the jail, um, two days after the decision, 
I'd got permission to visit him for the first time. Hmm. Uh, and so I went to visit him in this bleak, high-security jail on the borders of California and Nirvana. And I met him for the first time. <laughs> We've written to each other and... What was that moment like? Fantastic. Mm. You could not believe he was so, so, so well, so vigorous. We talked about two and a half hours, three hours. Mm. And you're allowed two photographs. You can have a token for two photographs. Mm. And for this uh, photograph, uh, they pulled down a sheet, a sheet which has just got waterfalls and tropical plantations. <laughs> So I have a photograph which I can show you here. But we'll we'll, we'll which put you, it on the Twitter account later you can, on. Well, you can you can you can put it up, which is my first meeting with Donny. And there's a picture of us two with his mum, and then Donny and me arm in arm, and you'd think we were on holiday in Hawaii, not in a high security prison. Yeah. With a guy who's been in jail for 38 years, and none of the things he's writing, none of the stuff. Passing it around the studio. We'll Passing show it to you. Passing around the studio. <laughs> if you go, go on the Sweet 2 on Twitter this, account, we'll, we'll tweet lovely, it out later on. Anyway, this lovely guy. Um, so, so what's my film's... So I, I'm hoping it's going to be um, completed this year. Will we be able to see it this year, do you think? I'm hoping so, and I hope it'll be on the BBC. Um, uh, but it's been a struggle to make. Yeah. Uh, unusual struggle because it seemed to me such a story which more people find interesting than anything else really mm. you know uh, but it's it's um because it's such a moving story and his writing and his work is so exceptional did you manage to, did you when you were in that meeting did you record him at all no you're not allowed, no, you're to, record. not allowed to record the only thing i was in fact the, the thing was cons there was one thing confiscated from my pocket I had a wooden toothpick. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you're allowed to take in 10, um, ten single-dollar bills. Mm. You, know, you can't take in any money bigger than a dollar bill. And what was the other thing? Was it my passport? Maybe my, No, I don't think my passport I had a single mm. dollar. And, and uh, so you're not allowed to take in anything. You have to leave it all at the desk. And you're surrounded by families mm. of prisoners who are all visiting... Uh, so it, it sort of it presents a, a different sort of challenge to to the films that you've made previously because of the, the inaccessibility. Although I suppose yes, but actually in a way that's the most expressive part of it. You know, when people say, "Well, you haven't got the interview with a guy," yeah. but actually, that's the power of it in a way. It's a portrait of an invisible man yeah. about whom you know everything. You yeah. know what he thinks. You know what he feels. He's given me a complete playlist of the music that matters to him. Not that I can clear the rights, so I can't use it or anything like that. Uh, and there is some bit of film of him because by chance in the year 2000, long before my friend Steve was writing to him and long before, there was an investigative reports made for one of the political, for one of the TV channels mm. who needed a woman, a mother, to film going to visit her son. And that woman happened to be Donnie's mum. And so I have film of, in the year 2000 of Donnie being taken from his cell and brought to the police where he meets his mother mm. but and then his mother driving and being shown through all the different stages why she comes to meet her son mm. but of course they talk through bulletproof perspex and if you can imagine a mother who for 24 years visited her son once a month on an eight-hour trip to the northern california so a 16-hour mm. round trip and never was once able to put her arm around her son and had to only speak to him through bulletproof persecs on a phone. I mean, the it's hmm. it's cruelty on an extraordinary scale, I and it's and it's and it's. I've never been so shocked <laughs> as being brought by chance mm. into the heart of the dark heart of the American prison system. And when you think that twenty five percent of the world's prison population are there in the United States, mm. and the United States only represent five percent of the world's population you realise the extent to which the prison system is the dark heart of America mm. in a way which... And, of course, all the people in there, a lot of them are black, of course, but what unites them all is they're all from poor 
deprived backgrounds, one way or another. I'd, I'd wrongly thought um, I'd wrongly thought he was on death row, but it's, it's, it's no, no, you know, not death row. No. It's, it's it's long long term incarceration. There's there's a kind of there's a unity there, and that you started with the. Uh, Westerns and American cinema, and, you, and you, it, you, the story ends in California. Um, but thank you so much for joining me, Mike. Um, you've um, been listening to Sweet One Hundred Two, uh, Sweet One Two One Two on Resonance One Hundred Four Point Four FM. I've been Tom Overton. Juliet Jakes will be back here on Resonance uh, next month. Um, make sure you tune in then. Uh, and meanwhile, as I said, we'll, we'll put links on social media of everything we've talked about. Uh, and thank you again uh, to, to Mike Dibb for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.